Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 17 and we're going to go through chapter 4 verse 1 because as you know, if you've been here any length of time or if you are a student of God's word, chapters and verses were not in the original, uh, the original text of scriptures. They were added so that we could navigate them quickly. Uh, and so the thought blends straight into chapter 4. So Colossians chapter 3 starting at verse 17, these are the words of God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So as we jump into the message this week, and as we, uh, we begin to uh, discover what is often referred to by scholars as the household codes, I-, I want you to notice right off the bat that Paul situates everything that he's about to say within the context of worship. Everything that he's about to say is in the context of Christian worship. That's why verse 17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And in a a sort of bookending way, uh, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 4 verse 2, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, in your prayer that is, with an attitude of thanksgiving. Uh, the call for the church to pray at, at chapter 4, verse 2, is a call for them to pray for diligence, a, a call for them to pray to act in accordance with what Paul has previously shared in chapter 3. So, I hope you guys realize this, when you're struggling to serve God, when you're struggling to follow after Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, because the command seems edgy or the command seems challenging to you, prayer is a a strategy for you. Prayer is a strategy, and I think we miss that at times. We often use prayer as just lobbing it up and asking God for the things that we want uh, because, well, sadly, we want too much stuff in America. But we, we, we ask God for things, or when they're noble things, we're asking for healing or we're asking for somebody to be uh, restored or something like that. But very rarely do we say, Lord, I know that your word is true. I know that your word is right, but I need help doing it. Because it's challenging at times. So he situates all of this within the context of worship. And then he bookends the back end with also adding prayer to that. 
As Christians, we often say that what we do, we do because Jesus is worthy. How many of you have ever said that or heard somebody say it? Why do you do what you do? Because Jesus is worthy. Here's the problem. Uh, That has lost all meaning. It It doesn't quite mean anything to the culture around us or even to some Christians. We might ask questions like, why is Jesus worthy? That would get us a little bit further. Uh, can you explain why Jesus is worth your, your uh, time and your devotion, maybe on a Sunday morning? Uh, or the second question, which I believe is probably more poignant to uh, the situation, and that is, why does Jesus being worthy affect my behavior? Or why should Jesus being worthy affect my behavior? Well, in chapter 1, verses 13 through 20 of Colossians, we're presented with what scholars call a high Christology. It simply means a high view of Jesus. And Paul tells us that through Jesus, this is really awesome, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 13 through 20 and follow along with it. But he says that that through Jesus, God rescued us from the kingdom of darkness or the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. That's pretty awesome. Okay, This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. It also says that in that kingdom, we now have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Isn't that a big deal? Yes. Every one of us feels the weight of those sins. We've walked uh, most of our lives in the weight of those sins. And anybody who knows freedom, genuine Jesus-given freedom, knows that this kind of redemption, this kind of uh, kingdom life is glorious. It is something that makes you want to shout. It makes you just straight-up Pentecostal at times. (laughs) Some of you. Some of you. Still won't go there with me, but it's okay. So God rescues us from darkness. He rescues us into the kingdom of light. And we now have redemption and forgiveness. We learn that Jesus is the exact representation of God. And if you know the Gospels well, uh, Gospel of John tells us that uh, Jesus, the Word, was with God and the Word was God. So we're not just talking about uh, with God, we're talking about a deity. We're talking about the Father, God, Jesus. This is what we're seeing here. So it's an amazing idea. And as we continue to roll through, the Apostle Paul says, through Jesus, everything that has been made was made. And the list here goes on and on. So it is true that we do everything because Jesus is worthy. And the reason Jesus is worthy is because of who he is and what he has done, not least of which is raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul says that if it is not for the resurrection, and I need you guys to hear me, if it is not for the resurrection, he lists no other act of Jesus. He says, if not for the resurrection, our faith is futile and it is in vain. We're we're fooling ourselves. Because if he doesn't resurrect, what Jesus is is just another martyr. He has just believed something, he has promoted his belief, and he has died for that belief. But Jesus has not just died for his belief, he has risen from the grave. But what about that second question? What about that second question? Why does Jesus being worthy, or why should Jesus being worthy, affect my behavior? The answer is because of worship. The answer is that worship is far more than singing our songs, okay? You should really track with me on this. Worship is far more than singing our songs or saying thank you to the air. (laughs) I hope you get that. Christian practice is worship, and this is an important statement that I would love for you to write down. Worship is a transformed life in action. Worship is a transformed life in action. 
Now, John led us in worship this morning. The team led us in worship this morning and sang songs. And that is a natural expression of humanity. And it is a beautiful expression. As a musician myself, as a singer myself, I love that part of life. But God has called us to a true act of worship. He's called us to something more than that. What we see today, or what we're going to see today, is that every action that we read from Colossians 3.18-4.1 through 4, 1, are in fact expressions of worship. For some reason, modern Christians seem to persist in this idea of divorcing what we do, that is our moral behavior, from what, we're, uh, what we often call worship. We have all kinds of reasons for why, the, why we do this. We say things like, well Nathan, we're saved by grace and not by works. That's awesome. That's awesome. And that is a very limited view of what Scripture tells us. You are saved by works, or you are saved by grace through works, but you are called to righteousness. You are called to holiness in your life. Uh, To view this idea that we can separate our moral behavior or separate our actions from our life of worship is actually, actually a willful ignorance of the whole picture of the Bible. I know that's challenging, but it is willful ignorance. In divorcing practice from worship, we actually rob God of what he's due. Did you know that? How do we rob God, Nathan? Because Ephesians 2.10 tells us we were made for good works. It was prepared in advance that we would walk in them. We can't keep shying away from the work that we were called to live out inside of our lives. If we're not careful, here's what we're going to do. We're going to slip back into that age-old Jewish problem or age-old problem, and that is we will worship God with our lips, but our hearts will be far from Him. How many of you want that? No. We want to be close to God. We want to abide in Him. We want to be near Him. So... If we want to worship God with our heart, we have to realize what verse 17 says. Whatever we do in word or deed, we need to to give thanks. It is word or deed, both and. We are giving thanks to God. This is faith with works, church. This is faith with works. This is what James uh, rails on in his epistle. This is doctrine and practice. Last week. Curtis rightly said that our doctrine needs to move to action inside of our life. How many of you would agree with that? Our doctrine needs to move to action. But let me, let me tell you that right doctrine leads to right action. But wrong doctrine will lead to wrong action. You see, the problem in the Old Testament was not a group of people who did not obey God. They were doing it to the detailed letter of the law. When the Apostle Paul says, what I do, I did faultlessly. I did flawlessly. I don't think the Apostle Paul's exaggerating. He did it flawlessly. You know what the problem was? His doctrine was that he was going to make God love him. Wrong doctrine makes for wrong behavior, which leads to no relationship. So you have to have right doctrine, and you have to have right practice. We don't want to just uh, believe. We need to believe and do. In a both and sort of way, this is what Paul talks about in Romans 12, 1 and 2. In view of mercy, present your body, your life, as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God because what? Because this is your true act of worship. What an amazing idea. So number one, what we're about to read is situated firmly in the context of worship. Number two, both what we say and what we do constitute true worship 
It's not just what we say. It's not just what we do. It is both. For the rest of our time, we're going to look at some of the most intense worship applications you've ever heard. So buckle up. Or as I tell my girls, suck it up. Because we're about to dive in here, okay? So for the, for the rest of the time, we're going to look at these household codes. And we're going to see a sort of how-to of what we learned last week, verses 12 through 16. How many of you love the idea of putting on uh, kindness and compassion and gentleness and faithfulness and love and doing that to the point of unity? Oh, it sounds amazing. And it is amazing. But if you don't continue in what Paul says, it's meaningless. Because love is interpreted by the world any way they want to. Faithfulness and gentleness is interpreted any way the world wants it to be interpreted. And sadly, the church has bought onto that. These are great ideas. They all make us jump up and down until we see what those actions really mean. And then we're a little bit swallowing hard. We're we're swallowing hard a little bit. We're, We're a little bit challenged, right? I want to encourage you, as you hear what we read in Ephesians or in Colossians today, I want you to pray through it. Because it is challenging. But it's beautiful, and here's why. Because God loves you. And God has established a system and an order and a glorious one at that. So, without further ado, the household codes. Households mattered in the first century, whether you knew that or not. Uh, Entire households are recorded as coming to the Lord. I'm going to put a bunch of scriptures up if you're a note taker. You can put these references up and look for them uh, when you go and study at home. Acts chapter 16 verse 15 teaches us of Lydia and her household being saved. What a powerful, uh, a powerful idea. In Acts chapter 16 verse 31 we read of the jailer and his household being saved. In Acts chapter 10, 2, and eleven fourteen, we have two sides of the same story, which is the story of Cornelius, and it says that Cornelius and his household were saved. John chapter 4 verse 53, a royal official whose daughter was healed by Jesus, uh, their household was saved. In Acts chapter 18, 8, Crispus and his household are saved. 1 Corinthians 1, 16, uh, Paul says that he only baptized few and one was, the, one was a group. It was the household of Stephanus. So just like today, the epicenter of the kingdom of God, the epicenter of, of Christian mission, actually begins in the household. Sadly, we've lost sight of this. We've outsourced most of our responsibility. How many of you know that? We've pushed it off on the church. We've pushed it off on the schools. We've pushed it off somewhere else. Now, hear me very clearly on this. I've done the numbers. I've, I've, I've tallied the numbers. And we have you and we have your kids in the course of a week. We have you and we have your kids in the hour to hour and a half that we have you on Sunday. 0.7% of your week. Just let that sink in. 0.7% of your week. Do you think we are going to shape all of the mind and all of the behavior of everybody in this room with that time? We are absolutely not. You see, that's why it is important what the church does, but the home was the epicenter of Christian mission. It was a powerful, powerful place. If we're going to submit to God's order, his, uh, the greatest witness, if we will submit to his order, the greatest witness for the kingdom of God is going to come at our dining room table. The greatest witness for the kingdom of God is going to come when people join us for a meal and they see how we devote ourselves to Jesus and how we interact with one another. This is really, really important. 
So otherwise, we fall into those age-old heresies. Otherwise, we, we go and we adhere to the world's philosophies, the world's traditions, the world's systems. As I've shared many weeks in this series, God does not have a problem with philosophy. God does not have a problem with tradition. And God surely doesn't have a problem with principles. He has a problem with yours. <laughs> he doesn't like yours, and he wants you to change and to submit. He wants you to come under him. I will say this, though, that nothing that I have shared here uh, takes away value from the church gathered, this assembly together. And why is that? Because the scripture shows that both are complementary to the Christian mission. We live in a time, church, where everybody says, oh, I take the church with me. You, you don't take the church with you. You are a part of the church. That is an amazing idea. You do not take the church with you. The church is an assembled gathering. The communion elements, the things that we participate in, in sacraments and worship, those are things that are structured within a, uh, uh, a context. And that context is the church gathered. Are you a representative of the church when you're out in your world? You better believe it. You better believe it when you're at your when you're at your dining room table, you're a representative of the kingdom of God. So don't devalue the church just because home is an epicenter for Christian evangelism. Just put them together. And then invite those people that you shared Jesus with to come and experience a family. A group of people that actually love each other. That is apart from Dave McCarthy. But we love each other around here very deeply. Sorry, Dave. I needed to throw you into my message at some point. Curtis paid me to do it, actually. So it's okay. So let's get into these codes and try to understand them rightly. As I've shared in this series, Paul is not arbitrarily tossing out a bunch of strict behaviors. Everything that we're about to learn is centered in worship or situated in the context of worship. It is for the glory of God. Verse 18, wives, I even hate reading this word because you all hate me reading this word, but it is beautiful if you can understand what God says. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, there's the first thing that I want you to notice about this instruction. The first thing that I want you to notice is that Paul follows a contrary order to the culture. Look it up in Ephesians and look it up in Colossians. And what you will see is that Paul addresses first wives, then husbands. First children, then fathers. First slaves, then masters. This is unheard of. This is unheard of. Why would Paul do it? And he keeps his system dead on. He knows exactly what he's doing with the words that he's writing. Now it is my uh, conjecture, it's my opinion that what the Apostle Paul is doing is he is telling everybody what Jesus has already shared with us and that is that the wall of separation is broken down in the church. The wall of separation is broken down in that God loves women and he loves men. He loves children. He loves fathers. He loves slaves. He loves masters. Okay, And in Christ Jesus, guess what the scripture says? We are one. We are one in Christ Jesus. But there is something that I need you to see using just a small bit of logic. We know emphatically what the Apostle Paul is not saying by reversing these orders. He is not saying that there is no order. Is he? There is both. 
Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. He recognizes the distinctions, but we're one in Jesus Christ. And the reason why we know it logically is that the same Apostle Paul who wrote the line that said we are one in Christ Jesus is the one who wrote verse 18 that said, wives, be subject to your husbands. It's an important thing for us to realize that leadership, hierarchy, uh, structure is not evil. Can Can you say that with me? It's not evil. It isn't. Bad leadership bites the big one, doesn't it? Of course it does. But the scripture doesn't The the scripture doesn't say uh, there's no such thing as bad leadership. Get over it. No, there is bad leadership. But God has an order, and it is an absolutely beautiful thing. When I'm studying the scripture, what I often do is I look for words that stand out to me or words that I believe will stand out to you, (laughs) right? Words that you'll say, hold on a second, back up. Nathan, and explain that particular uh, word. And the two words in this verse are subject or submit in the NIV and the phrase as is fitting in the Lord. So I want you to, I want you to listen to me for a bit. There appears to be a difference between the specific nuance of the term according to the voice in which it occurs. Now this sounds crazy and heady, but I'll I promise you it'll make sense. In Greek, you have what are known as the active and the middle voice. When this term, uh, submit, occurs in the active voice, the power to subject or the power to make someone submit belongs to another. And in the scripture, it belongs to God himself. Okay? It's really important that we understand what the active voice is, okay? But when it appears in the middle voice, and that's what we're seeing here, it describes a voluntary submission which resembles Christian humility. It it resembles a voluntary submission that is exactly like what our Lord and Savior Jesus did. Do you know the scripture says that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but what did he do? He humbled himself and came in the form of a man. He he came to earth. Why? Why did Jesus come to earth? Because if Jesus doesn't come to earth, we're dead. (laughs) Right? Come on. I need you guys waking up this morning. If Jesus doesn't come to earth, if Jesus doesn't save us, this is a bad story. We are lost. We are dead in trespasses and sins. But Jesus does come. You see, Jesus could have sat high on his throne and said, kill them all. That's what you want to do most days. (laughs) But that's not what Jesus did. You see, I believe that the story of Scripture is communicating over and over that God wants us to see him in accordance with his loving, kind, generous, compassionate nature. I believe we see it over and over that what God wants us to see, is he judge, church? Is God judge? Is he a righteous judge? Does he have the right to condemn us all? Yes, but does he love us? Wow, fit all that together in your head. It's an amazing idea. And it seems from the story of Genesis to the story of Jonah to the story of the resurrection that the story that God is trying to communicate is I'm more compassionate than you think I am. That's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. Anybody who has tasted and seen, as the scripture says, anybody who's experienced really the loving, kind, compassion of God knows 
how he wants to be seen. Amen? Amen? It's just an amazing idea. So, in this middle voice, it describes voluntary submission from a wife to a husband. The same we see in our Savior. It may describe Christ's submission to God in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. But church members are definitely included in this in Ephesians chapter 5, 21. And you all remember this back when we went through Ephesians. I shared with you that this word, hupotasso, simply, uh, simply means to, to come under, right? To submit. And I had you say it, and you guys are funny when you say Greek words. It's really cool. Hupotasso. But uh, the term in 521, uh, or the phrase in 521 says, hupotasso one to another, which I told you the translation was, uh, submit all y'all to all y'all, <laughs> right? Uh, so that just confirms that all y'all piece that, that we, we worked on. Curtis, I, I absolutely loved your message yes, last week, uh, but you are not allowed to say y'all anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't work from you. It, just, it does not work. Curtis is not a y'all guy. It just, nope, not going to happen. Um, so it's submit all y'all to all y'all. The, the latter use appeals to the free agent to take a place of submission voluntarily. Now listen to me, ladies. I need you to hear these, these words. The term does not suggest slavery or servitude. You are not a slave. This is so important. It certainly never calls for the husband to make his wife submit. So husbands, listen to me. You're the head of the household. You ain't King Kong. Got it? I'm serious. You're the head of the household, but what you often see in Christian circles, and let's be honest with each other, what we often see in Christian circles are men beating their chest and acting like fools. Amen? Mark said true, and I don't want to know if he was referring to himself, but, but that's really impressive. So this is a voluntary submission. Listen to this. In the context, the word differs radically from the description of children and slaves who are called to obey. Wives are never called to obey. They are called to come under their husband. And when you have a loving head in your household, it is a glorious thing. It is a glorious thing. You say, Nathan, how do you know what you know about women? Well, first of all, the instruction we're being given is from a guy who never got married, so <laughs> deal with that one, right? <laughs> so that's the first thing. It is from God. And the second thing is men are not void of this submission. We have a head too, and his name is Jesus, and he is good. He is good. And it is an amazing thing how he gently moves us along. So the first term is submit. The second term is the context in which you submit. It's the qualifier of submission. And that is, as is fitting in the Lord. What an amazing, amazing thing. Listen, the full phrase can function two different ways. And it does. Number one, it's fitting in the Lord that men are the heads of their households. It's what the scripture says. It says that God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. And that is a hard pill to swallow in the 21st century culture. I get it. I'm simply telling you that this is God's order. He's calling you to it. And remember, it's an amazing act of worship when we get it right. 
Okay? So the full phrase functions, one, in that way. It is fitting in the Lord for us to submit or for us, for women to have a husband whom, to whom they submit. But, listen to this, it's also a qualification that tells the degree of subjection or submission. The degree is, as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I'm going to be very candid with you and go a bit off script. Uh, I want you guys to know something, women specifically. There is a difference in your life. Uh, There is a difference in all of our lives. There is a difference between sin and crime. Sin and crime. And I need you to track with me, please. Okay? There's a difference between sin and crime. All crime is a sin. That's fine, right? But not all sin is viewed as criminal. And this has been this way since the Bible, since the writing of the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, we have many sins that are not prosecuted, right? You just, you sin, you ask for forgiveness, you get smacked in the head, whatever it is, right? And and you come back to this thing. But there are sins in the Old Testament which were crimes. Uh, Some pretty steep penalties too, right? Off with the head (laughs) kind of things, okay? When we're talking about submission, please understand that there are moments when your husband, wives, there are moments when your husbands will be disobedient to the word of God. Sometimes they're sinning and you need to forgive them and show them mercy, the same mercy you've been shown. There are times, believe it or not, where a husband can commit a crime. If husbands beat their wives, call the police. You go, wait wait a second, Nathan, I mean, we're supposed to be merciful. Yeah, <laughs> there were also crimes in the Old Testament, and they sent these people packing. Cast them out of the community, send them to jail, whatever it was, stone them. I don't know what it is, but the point that I'm getting at is if you're in a situation where you're trying to be a faithful wife, and you want to submit according to the Scriptures, and you want to do it in accordance with what is fitting for the Lord, but your husband is not only sinning, but he's committing a crime, you can take and should take real steps to get him better. Okay? Christian submission just does not come with the thorough explanation in the culture today. It doesn't come with it in the church. And I guess I'm just stupid enough to wade into these issues, but they need to be dealt with. We need to understand right submission and wrong submission. Amen? Remember this. There are sins and there are crimes. If your husband is committing a crime or if your wife is committing a crime, you need to deal with that properly. Your kids are deal, de- committing a crime, right? Deal with it properly. But what we're dealing with is in the Lord. It's an important thing. So how is this done? How do we submit in the Lord? Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior. That's an identifier. Reverence in behavior. Not malicious gossips. There's an identifier of behavior. Not enslaved to much wine. Should I repeat that? Okay, not... <laughs> I just, I'm just asking, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. You have a job and a call in your life, women. Teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands. Back to that 0.7% of the time, I have you and I have your children. <laughs> uh, older women, I need you to disciple. And I desperately need your help. I desperately need your help. Why? Because God said that's the way it works, and that's what's needed. We need discipleship on all levels. Amen? Amen? So you need younger women. Find an older woman who can shape you and help you. Listen, just because somebody is older doesn't mean they're wise. Trust me when I say this, okay? Just because they're older, but... 
but you need to find a trustworthy woman. And you need to submit. You need to go there and you need to learn. And older women, you need to sacrifice some time. Need to sacrifice some time. Maybe you can disciple while you're rearing your kids. Maybe you can disciple while you're cooking dinner. Maybe you can disciple while you're doing the million other things that you do. I don't know. But please take that responsibility seriously. Then he goes on in verse 4. He says, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands. You want to know why marriage is in, a, in, in hard uh, places at times? Because we're not encouraged to love our husbands or our wives or our children all the time. But you need to be encouraged to it. Love your husbands. Love your wives. Encourage people to that. Be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. It does not say in the scripture women are subject to men. It says wives are subject to their own husbands. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Do you see worship in that? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. What a beautiful picture. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-4. through 4, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. I was thinking about having you raise your hands, but I don't want you to. Okay, If they're disobedient, if, hear me, if they're disobedient, and maybe they are, then what are you to do? It says... That you are continually submissive, that they may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives. We're talking about disobedient in sin, not in crime. Please hear me. Verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external, braided, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. Those things are great, but it can't just be that. Why? Because Jesus has taught us over and over that the truth about who you are comes from your heart comes from your heart and you need to guard that more than you guard the makeup counter you need to guard that more than you worry about your hairbrushes or whatever it is that's what Paul is saying here so this gets challenging when your husband's a jerk right women are trying to like not nod their head right now they're like (laughs) Am I supposed to nod my head with this jerk sitting right next to me? (laughs) Sorry, no. I didn't think about the question before I asked it, so. But, please hear hear me. This is a a beautiful thing when it's done right. It's a beautiful thing when it's done right. And just like anything, including Old Testament law, it is a train wreck when it is done wrong. Do you hear me? Husbands. I'm going to take the rest of my time and beat the snot out of you. Verse 19. <laughs> there was a woman clapping all of a sudden. <laughs> that was, that was, oh, oh, sorry. Cover that up. Verse 19. Track with me, guys. It'll be on the board. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Well, those sound easy, Nathan. Oh, they're not. Love your wives. A distinctive Christian note that comes through in this verb form of agape, agapao is, is the verb form, which uh, as elsewhere in Paul's writings, he refers to Romans 8, Galatians 2, and so on, uh, gains its characteristic emphasis from Christ's self-giving on the cross. It's his self-giving on the cross. You want a better picture of it? Watch what Ephesians chapter 5 says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. <laughs> gave himself up for her? Yeah, he died, by the way. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Husbands, 
you have a responsibility. The glory of your wife in Jesus Christ is a responsibility that you hold. You should want that. You should strive for that. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. Do you want to know what the, what the message presented in the culture is? You need to learn how to love yourself better. I'm here to tell you it's a lie from hell. Smile. You want to know why it's a lie? Because you already love you, and I know it. I see it right now. You all smell good. You all look good. You loved you when you came here this morning. Right? You did. You loved you. It is not what the culture says. I got I to gotta practice some more self-love. No, you need to practice self-love on another person, meaning you need to love them. Because husbands, if you love your wives, you actually are loving yourself. Husbands aren't willing to die, and they're not willing to love their wives because they think somehow these things are counterintuitive. Die and love her. Die and love her. Make her the most important thing in your world. You need to do it. I say this jokingly all the time, but there's a bit of truth in this joke. Most husbands are not willing to lay down their lives because they're not willing to lay down the remote control. Get off your duff. Have you ever heard the proverb, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick? You know why you want to know why some of your wives' hearts are sick? Because her hope of you fixing the house has been deferred for 55 years. Oh, Nathan, you're a jerk. Right? You want to know why her heart grows sick? Because her hope of you getting off your butt and helping her is not present. You guys love me, don't you? I love you deeply. I love you deeply. But this is a responsibility we don't take seriously anymore. Die for your wives. Love them in the way that they need to be loved. Verse 29, again, for no one ever hated his own flesh. That's a statement of fact. Whether you like it or not is, is up to you, but it's a statement of fact. But nourishes and cherishes his own body, just as Christ also does the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Let me point out a how to you husbands in just a real important way. Turn back to Colossians chapter 3 verses 8 through 10. You see, it's really easy again to hear put on Christ when you say words like heart of compassion and love and generosity and patience. It's really hard. Until you realize what that heart of compassion actually needs to do as action steps. Husbands, here's how you can make sure you're loving your wife. Put aside your anger, your wrath, your malice, your slander, your abusive speech from your mouth. Scripture says, uh, we say, we say, sticks and stones break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And life knows that's not true. Wives have lived in misery because their husbands can't keep a, a leash on their tongue and they're abusive. It's not good. This is a sin and not a crime, but husbands, you need to correct it. You need to change this. Evil practices, all of these things are to be set aside. Verse 10, and having put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Husbands, you have a big call. 
you have a big call. You are supposed to love and die for your wife. Children, this is the last one I'm going to be able to hit in our time today. And I want to encourage you uh, about where we're going next week in the message. Verse 20, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Would you guys like me to call kids point in first before I share this? No. Anyway, so, so I also want to include 21. So children are to be obedient to their parents in all things, for it is well-pleasing to the Lord. Do you see the worship in the children's obedience? It's worship when children obey. You want to lead your kids to worship with the family? Teach them obedience. It's an amazing idea, right? Fathers, verse 21, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. I need you to hear this. The antidote to angry children is not to let them do whatever they want. I'm going to wait till y'all you know, get on board here. The antidote to angry children is not to let them do whatever they want. Instead, it's to discipline them and instruct them in the Lord. This is not an easy task. I'm not claiming that it is. But I try really hard. And Sarah tries really hard. And we want to have well-behaved children. And there are days when they're not. There are moments in church when they're not. There are moments when everybody's got their eyes on the pastor and his kids. Right? And my statement to you is they're humans and they're little sinners. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. If you will set clear expectations with your children, if you will be consistent in your discipline, if you will talk to them peacefully, you will not make them angry. They will learn. But you can ask my wife. I don't do this well. I'm not there yet, but I'm trying very hard. Guys, as we wrap this up, here's what I want you to know. Last week, we talked about putting on compassion and kindness and humility and patience. Forgiveness, love, and unity. And all of that is some of the most beautiful rhetoric that the Apostle Paul uses. It is perfect. However, words like these sound great until they have flesh and bones on them. Words like these are great until you see what they really mean. You see, the Apostle Paul didn't preach in sermon series. The whole letter was read to the church. And so they came right off of put on Jesus. And then he said, wives, here's how you put on Jesus. Or put on Jesus. Wives, here's how you put on Jesus. Husbands, here's how you put on Jesus. Children, here's how you put on Jesus. Masters and slaves, here's how you put on Jesus. You see, forgiving sounds really great until, uh, until you're forgiving a husband that's a jerk. Right? But that's what we're called to. Loving sounds great. Patience sounds great until you have that Proverbs wife. Solomon said it's better to live on a rooftop than to live with her. (laughs) He said it, not me. I don't want you taking this up with me. There's times when it's better to live on a rooftop than with a husband too. So I don't make any bones about this. Okay. But see, putting on Christ is an amazing call. But it has real actions. And those real actions are tricky, aren't they? You go to work and you're supposed to serve your employer as though you're serving the Lord. (laughs) Barney hates this. (laughs) 
right? <laughs> John, I need you up here. Come on, let's pray. <laughs> as, we, as we turn this sermon off, <laughs> um, and as we move into our communion time, I want to encourage you, coming up, coming up and taking a piece of bread and dipping it in the juice and reflecting on what Jesus has done for you is a great thing. It's an amazing thing. But what you're doing in that is you're saying, Lord, I'm yours. I always have been since you bought me, and I always will be, and I want to do it your way. And then doing it his way is where we need each other's help, right? Right? We need each other's help. We need people to come beside us and say, Nate, you missed it. And I need you to come beside me all the time praying for me, just as you need me praying for you. That's the way it works, okay? We're called to put on Jesus, but look at what putting on Jesus means. Wow. Wow. Let me tell you this. When the church lives in that, when the church lives in that submission, when the church lives in that obedience, the world will finally be impacted. What we're doing right now is we just keep holding on to this bit of Christianity. You know, the saved, I get to go to heaven part. <laughs> and we leave off the, oh, I got to do stuff part. <laughs> we don't like that part. If we will put it all together, people will literally look at us and say, what is the reason for the hope that is in you? Why do you have hope? Why is it that you're okay with this? Why is it that you continue to be patient and kind? Why? And your response is, because I have a Savior who is patient and kind with me. I have one who died for me, one who shed his blood for me. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.